Welcome to the Aspie podcast. Peter Tesh has been posted not once, but twice to Moscow, the second time as Australia's ambassador between 2016 and 2019. Along the way, he got to know former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, and he developed an insight into Vladimir Putin and Russian politics that makes him a perfect interlocutor on the current war in Ukraine. Peter retired from the public service two months ago after a 35-year career. He joined me, David Rowe, for this special podcast episode to discuss Russia's leader, its people, its strategic ambitions, and the frightening prospect that it could resort to nuclear escalation. Peter, thanks for coming on the program. David, great to join you. You spent... um, about 35 years in government in a range of senior roles, a couple of uh, several ambassadorial positions, uh, some time at Prime Minister and Cabinet, and finally Defence. Very wide range of roles, uh, senior, uh, including Berlin and Moscow. So I'm interested in starting with some insights into what a person learns over a career like yours, particularly about power, the, the governance or ruling of people, how the public servants who populate different political systems uh, go about their um, their business. Give us uh, some insights into what you learn about that as you engage at higher and higher levels and and uh, and participate in more and more consequential decision-making. Well, it's interesting to reflect on three and a half decades. Uh, they weren't all senior roles, of course. Uh, I learned how to unjam the photocopier uh, way back at the start of my career, although way back at the start of my career, we didn't have photocopiers in the workplace. Nonetheless, as you progress through the ranks, as you experience diverse roles, I've done policy work, multilateral and bilateral policy work. I've done project management. I had a corporate role in the foreign affairs department running the IT branch. What I think you develop is that diversity of understanding about what goes in to the policymaking process, what goes into the business of governing. I think one of the most valuable and revealing roles I had was shortly after I'd come back from my first posting in Moscow in late 1991, after a year or so on a desk in the department, I had the opportunity to go up as a departmental liaison officer to the then Federal Minister for Trade, Peter Cook. And for a year, I worked in that office uh, as a DLO, and that was illuminating early in my career, because you're accustomed down in the machinery room of bureaucracy to thinking that when you have finalised your ministerial submission, that's it. But when it lands in a minister's office, there is an entire new raft of processes and lenses that filter the advice. So in my case, I was working for the trade minister who was a senator from Western Australia, from the centre-left of the Labor Party, who was in cabinet uh, and who was a counterpart to a very dynamic and intellectually forceful figure in the form of Gareth Evans as foreign minister. Uh, And of course, as the guy responsible for preparing question time briefing for the minister in the Senate, uh, that was illuminating to develop a feel for what might be important to the bureaucracy is not necessarily the same set of coefficients that is applied up on the hill. And I think that early opportunity to build an understanding of the diversity and the complexity of government decision making was invaluable because I learned and was able to apply subsequently, including in mentoring more junior staff, that uh, there are many outcomes to a policy process. The important thing is about the health of the process, the integrity of the advice, the professionalism 
with which it is delivered, and ultimately the accountability rests with the elected representatives. We say it, we tell it to grads when they start in the public service, but living that early in my piece, and this was not a partisan role, this was simply perceiving and understanding more deeply than I might otherwise have had the opportunity how governments actually govern and how policy is created that bureaucracies then have to implement. Mm. Are there enough opportunities, that you think, for younger uh, people in the public service to get that experience early on uh, that they can sort of carry with them that, about those, you know, particularly the political inputs, I suppose, to, uh, to policy making that they can give the best advice in the world, but um, uh, without an understanding of politics, then it, it just won't lead to anything consequential? I think clearly the answer is no, there are not sufficient opportunities and that's simply a numbers game. I think you cannot possibly rotate every new grad uh, through a minister's office. A minister's office has got to be able to function and there's, a, there's an obvious uh, opportunity cost that comes with trying to train people. But I think we could make more use of non-sitting periods to enable that kind of insight to be shared from ministerial offices and and individuals in my experience have done it and done it very willingly to come down and talk to people in the department about what is it actually like you know what happens with your beautifully crafted mellifluous prose that has been hacked apart by multiple layers above you before it even leaves the building when it gets to a minister's office i think one thing i've always tried to impart to more junior staff is the necessity of political awareness which does not mean politicization. There is no point writing pure policy that is completely adrift from the realities of the context in which it will be perceived, considered, weighed, and either accepted or discarded. So being aware of the political factors uh, that abound in the bureaucratic world is really important, but not crafting policy advice to align with those factors, but advice that is crafted in a vacuum. Uh, I remember a former foreign minister uh, who used to meet annually, uh, and I was responsible for the branch at the time with the various NGOs uh, interested in disarmament and non-proliferation and so on, was very decent, thorough and conscientious in those regular engagements. But invariably, there'd come a point of some frustration where the the aspirations of these groups would be articulated and would lead him to, with a slight sense of frustration, say, I understand what you're saying, but you need to give me something that I can actually work with. I need to be able to implement it. Uh, And I would paraphrase that to say, there is no point having a policy of perfection uh, that sits on a shelf. Uh, And for me, the thing that I've learned most over the years, including serving in other countries, watching and understanding something of how Their civil services, Uh, Russia is a little different, but it has more similarities than perhaps people might expect. But whether it's in the multilateral institution of the United Nations, whether it's in Berlin, uh, the importance of being able to craft realistic policy that is optimised. Perfection might be a lofty goal. But if you shackle everything to achieving perfect outcomes, you will invariably be disappointed because stakeholder management, and this is something I became very acutely attuned to when I worked in the trade minister's office, the need to compromise and manage 
or the day-to-day as well as for the long-term means you can at best hope for optimal pathways rather than perfect policy solutions. And so frank, fearless, but not oblivious, naive or unrealistic. That would be a nice sort of quintet to be able to uh, infuse every submission. I want to focus a lot of the conversation on Russia, obviously, because of your um, your expertise there and your, I think, two periods that you spent there as a, as a representative of the Australian Two government. postings. It was yep. my first posting um, as third secretary, and then I went back as ambassador. People used to say, have you been to Russia before? And I would say, well, it's my second time in Moscow, but my first time in Russia. Let's talk about Gorbachev. You, you spent time with Gorbachev. You famously procured a hat for him, in fact. He's widely hated in in Russia now, I believe, um, seen as the guy who, who brought down the Soviet Union. What does that actually tell us about the success that Putin and his followers have had in effectively rewriting history and creating this sort of national narrative that they were done over around that period in yeah, around 1990 that has since been taken advantage of? Yeah, that's a really um, uh, multi-layered sort of issue. I met Gorbachev socially, uh, and he was a figure that had always loomed large in my professional career. He had just become Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union when I first went to the Soviet Union as a student of the Russian language in 1985. I was there from March 89 to September 91 as Third Secretary, and my apartment was just across the river from the so-called White House, the Russian Parliament Building, which was the site of the uh, the August assaults uh, during the attempted coup uh, to remove Gorbachev from power. Uh, and, of course, he ran out of country to rule uh, and laid down you know, his office in December 1991, and the rest, as they say, is history. And as you have said, history uh, belongs to the victor and the rewriting of history, not just in relation to Gorbachev, but Russian history under the former Minister for Culture, uh, Medinsky, who was single-minded in the complete recasting of history to align with the future-oriented narrative uh, that was being propagated by the Kremlin, is a really important illustration of the risks of the lack of accountability. And the problem, I think, uh, in relation to Gorbachev, is that he was not the man who destroyed the Soviet Union. Uh, The rewriting of history glosses over the fact that the man who destroyed the Soviet Union was Boris Yeltsin, because it was a naked exploitation of the crumbling USSR to restore Russia to absolute prominence uh, that gave rise to the Bielovetsky Accords uh, that were signed between the then presidents of Russia, Belarus and Ukraine, and that sounded the death knell for the USSR. Gorbachev had fought to the very last to try to preserve a modernised Soviet system. He saw very clearly the failings and the blemishes of Soviet socialism. But he was still a firm believer in the superiority of that system if it could be made fitter for purpose. And unfortunately for him, uh, he chose pathways that were perhaps not optimal. So the the political uh, relaxations that occurred uh, gave vent to the seething internal dissent. The Soviet Union, contrary to the narrative peddled by the Kremlin and and apologists for for Putin's government, uh, wherever they reside, the Soviet Union was not brought down by external forces. It collapsed under the weight of its own internal contradictions and incapacities. Gorbachev uh, ran once for president subsequently and scored something around 1% of the popular vote. And with that 
he clearly ended any aspirations for a political comeback. But he was a man who, let's not forget, rose through the ranks of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. You don't become Secretary General of that organisation and leader of the country by being a soft, pliable touch. First time I shook his hand, I was struck by how firm his grip was, how large his hands were. This was a man who in his adolescence with his father did hard physical labour on the collective farm. And he was responsible, of course, for decisions that resulted in the incarceration of people, in the deaths of people, when he sent the tanks into Vilnius and Tbilisi to suppress popular uprisings that were seeking to exploit Glasnost and the decay of the USSR to, to reacquire independence. But he also exercised choice that created a far better world uh, than might otherwise have been expected to arise following the collapse of the USSR. Uh, He famously, in an interview in 2005, expostulated, people accuse me of giving away Hungary and giving away Poland. To whom did I give them away? I gave Hungary to the Hungarians. I gave Poland to the Poles. So he eschewed the use of force to preserve something that was irredeemable and unsustainable, and that was the Soviet satellite system. So this is something that is often overlooked now when people argue the pros and cons of Ukraine and with it how. Sovereignty of choice means sovereignty of choice. And the nations of Eastern Europe exercised choice uh, as they did in Ukraine. So Gorbachev uh, was a man I found uh, deeply emblematic of my adult era. And a man who, with Ronald Reagan, achieved something hitherto unthinkable, the elimination of entire class of nuclear weapons with the signing of the INF Treaty. Uh, And in all of my encounters with Gorbachev, he rarely would discourse about contemporary politics. He was too savvy to buy into that. But he would always recall three things. One, the war. And there was a period where they thought his father had been killed. And the war that came to Stavropol, uh, to the southern Russian region, I mean, I think this was, this was something, as it did with the veteran generation of politicians in the United States and elsewhere, those who have experienced war understand this is not something to be dealt with and dispensed lightly. And I think that was a big driver for Gorbachev in his policy choices in foreign policy. Second, you know, his abiding love for Raisa Maximovna, his wife. Uh, and the third was an enduring affection and respect for Ronald Reagan, two men who managed to rise beyond what their systems were urging them to do or not do, and who developed over several meetings, including famously, you know, the so-called failed meeting in Reykjavik, a trust and a mutual respect and an ability to say, I can rely on you to keep your end of the bargain. And that shifted the dial for the world for the better. And that is something that uh, whatever else is said, whatever else he did or did not do, however better he might have done it, that is a legacy from which we have all benefited enormously. It's a wonderful contrast that you've alluded to there between a, a leader who created something, in this case, you know, sovereignty for, um, uh, for a, a wide array of people, uh, the current leader who is... Um, attempting to take it away or reverse it, really. I mean, it's, it's essentially an attempt to reverse those gains that were made uh, all that time ago. Let, let's move on to, to Russia and Putin. Your assessment of where things are at at the moment, uh, the position that Putin is in, what's his aim at the moment, what does he want at the moment, 
what's his best way forward? Criminology was always easier when you could count how far away from the centre of Lenin's mausoleum any particular member of the nomenclatura stood during Victory Day or May Day parades. Uh, it is very opaque, and anybody who says, here is the definitive analysis, is deluding themselves, and you shouldn't allow yourselves to be deluded by that person. Nonetheless, it is very clear that we, I think, collectively have failed to comprehend some of those inflection points over the last 15 or so years. The first was Putin's speech at the Munich Security Conference in 2007, where he very clearly rejected a US dominated unipolar world order. And that is not to say that everything that has happened since was part of a master plan and was foreordained. But there has been a steady trend to the reassertion of control. And a, a Russian friend of mine uh, said that he'd had an opportunity once, uh, this is a journalist, had an opportunity once to acquaint himself with some of the textbook materials that, uh, that were used in Putin's early KGB sort of education. And the word that recurred constantly was control, control. And I think if you reflect upon Putin's lived experience, you know, he is a, a Brezhnev era middle ranking KGB officer who was posted, let us remember, to Dresden in the GDR, a Soviet satellite state that had more uh, formal and informal security operatives than any other part of that system per capita. And of course, he was there as the GDR began to fall apart and as Gorbachev steadfastly refused to intervene militarily. And I think that was seminal, that loss of control, the risk uh, of chaos. And this is something that after the decade of Yeltsin, and let us not sort of miscast Yeltsin, he too had choices. And he firmly set Russia upon the pathway to democratization, pluralism. Uh, that, that was a heady decade, but it's clearer now that that was an aberration in the long span of Russian and Soviet history. So I think we are seeing now a progressive tightening of those systems of control. Uh, the creation of the instruments, the legal bases, that allow Putin, and we are at risk sometimes of over-identifying the system with the name Putin, but for the sake of this podcast, let's say Putin can use and deploy when need arises. And the Russian peoples are very adept at reading signals. They have been for hundreds and hundreds of years. So even though something may not be implemented, the fact that it has been brought into being is a very clear signal to those who know how to read signals of what kind of behaviour is expected and what kind of behaviour will be tolerated. And we now see, I think, a much more deliberate process of reversing the trends and the decisions uh, that, in the eyes of Putin and the Kremlin, uh, have been deleterious to Russia's national interests. This is about restoring Russia to greatness and restoring greatness to Russia. Uh, and again, one of the things that we tend to overlook is that sense of grievance at how the Soviet Union was taken apart, 
the current narrative persists with the fiction that it was malign external forces. And as a former US ambassador in Moscow said to me once, if we could do half the things we're accused of doing, we'd be so excited. You know, we are just not that good. Nonetheless, this is the narrative. Uh, and I think the capacity of a system which functions, in my view, largely at the tactical level and occasionally lifts to the operational, this is, this is not a strategic vision. This is the exploitation of asymmetries quickly and effectively with a view to something accruing over the long term. Contrast that with the very strategic approach that China is taking, the way in which it is developing overseas bases, it is mobilising the diaspora, it is working within the system of rules to rewrite the rules in ways more favourable to China's interests. It's using the Belt and Road Initiative, the Global Development Initiative, the Global Security Initiative. Russia, the, the Kremlin, flails and lashes out at signs of opposition, at signs of attempts to exploit weaknesses. And this is with the aim of recreating not the Soviet Union as a geographic entity, but recreating a nation that commands the respect and ex officio has its seat at the table. The challenge, of course, in the digital modern world of communication is everybody wants a soundbite. And when you start trying to explain the long span of Russian history, people get bored. Somebody once asked me, what's the essence of Russian foreign policy? And slightly glibly, I said, against us, you cannot prevail. Without us, you cannot succeed. The narrative you mentioned there about grievance, about restoration of Russia's natural position as a great power, how firmly is that holding at the moment in Russia, do you think, given everything that's going on? Because ultimately that that gives us a good insight into, into what kind of genuine support Putin continues to have. And he has obviously maintained a, a, a pretty solid level of support throughout his 23-odd years now in power. How firmly do you think that's holding with the Russian people? First thing I would say is I'd be wary about the published results of opinion polls. There is no doubt that Putin for a long time has exercised great authority and has indeed been popular as a man being seen to redress the wrongs done to Russia, whether by external forces or through the wild Klondike capitalist years that followed Yeltsin. But anybody who is asked in an official opinion poll in Russia to express a free and frank and fearless view is very unlikely to. So all of these polls, I think, while there is a, an underlying core, need to be viewed with some scepticism. Second point I would make is that this is, I think, at a tipping point. The mobilisation coming hard on the heels of repeated denials by Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin press spokesman for, for Putin, the deputy head of the presidential administration, the cack-handed way in which it's been executed across the country, which is classic throughout the system that has sat upon Russia and the Soviet Union for, for hundreds of years, the ineffective and ineffectual execution of that policy, where there are legion examples in Russian social media that I follow of people expressly excluded from mobilisation being rounded up. This is something that has provoked huge distress, dismay and outrage because, again, the, the underground communications in that sort of a culture 
uh, are always live. They were in the Soviet era, they are now. So what people can't say in public is being communicated in privately. And I think there is, particularly in the more populated areas, a very, very live sense of what is real and what is not real and what is happening and the fate that awaits these people being mobilised. Remember, too, this is a country that has always had conscription and the bastardization and the appalling conditions and the accidental deaths that occur during periods of military service are well known throughout the country. So I think there is no doubt in people's minds that this was a retrograde move. Whether they make that strategic link to this is a sign that things are not going well, many clearly do. But there are also a great many people for whom the core media diet is what is pumped out in the treacly, awful state media, beginning with Russia Today, going through Channel One. All of it is now totally controlled by the Kremlin. And the few independent voices have been snuffed out. They still exist on YouTube, but I saw in social media uh, just in the last 24 hours that the number of deputies in the Duma, the Russian parliament, are calling for the banning of YouTube and requiring all educational and government institutions to move to using domestic messenger systems, which of course makes them very, very vulnerable to monitoring and exploitation. Uh, and I think it's very clear too that Russia has been paying close attention to how China has been managing the internet, managing social discourse and controlling and constraining that. I think people in Russia, though, do feel, and this is a generalisation, a sense of grievance. I recall a conversation I had with a, a friend of mine whom I'd met in my first posting. We'd had episodic contact. I went back to Russia several times after my posting finished on leave and declared that, of course, to my security authorities. But my friend Anatoly is a representative of one of those three generations, I think, or three generational groupings, again, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think exist. The first group is that pre- and post-war generation that laboured mightily, went through the privations or whose parents went through the privations of the Second World War, laboured mightily in the belief that they were building something greater than the individual. And in 1991, all that was taken away from them. The prospect of a comfortable retirement, you know, a modest pension, but a pension sufficient to buy you bread, get you a ticket on the metro, you, know, you had your two weeks at the sanatorium and so on. All of that dissipated. And the academician of the Academy of Sciences, who was in an exalted position, suddenly was irrelevant and people wanted the plumber or the carpenter or the electrician. Then you have that sort of generation that came of age in the post-91 sort of era. People like my friend Anatoly, who had just completed his military service, so would have been around the order of 21 or so, 22. And this was a golden age. And he went into something the Russian calls business. And he picked me up at the airport once in a shiny red Audi 80, and he was involved in something that the Russian calls banking at that point, and making money like you wouldn't believe. And this was great. But that too ended up dissipating and fraying uh, as economic realities hit, uh, and the get-rich-quick schemes were just not sustainable in Russia as, any more than they were in any other country. So that disillusionment set in, and I was talking with Anatoly after the latest, at that point, 
administrative assault on Alexei Navalny, one of the key opposition sort of uh, figures. And Anatoly surprised me by saying, I, I don't hold a candle for Navalny, I don't hold a candle for Memorial, which was this group that arose uh, in the era of Glasnost to begin to throw light upon the crimes of Stalinism. They've now been banned, their property's been expropriated because they keep dealing with unpalatable and uncomfortable truths about Russian and Soviet history. But Anatoly said, I don't hold a candle for these people. The day will come when we need the Navalny's, but today is not that day. We need Putin. We need a man who will stand up for our country and its interests. And Anatoly had lived for 10 years in Greece and founded a little uh, business there. And this, I found, a remarkably revealing conversation. And the third group is what you might call the millennials. So these are the 20-something children of my friends from my first posting. And I got back to Moscow in March 2016, caught up with friends after a couple of months and was asking this young couple, oh, there's a long weekend coming up, what are you going to do? Oh, one said, we might go away somewhere. I said, oh, where might you go? Thinking the answer would be Sochi on the Black Sea coast, you know, very Soviet kind of Russian. And she said, oh, we haven't been to Venice for a while. We might go to Venice. I thought how things have changed. Mm -hmm. And this is a group that has grown up on iPhones, on iPads, on the net. And for them, the world is their frame of reference. And progressively, over the last decade in particular, the Kremlin's policies have started increasingly to set up a dichotomy. You know, you're either of the world or you're a patriotic Russian. And this sort of loosely termed millennial generation, I find really interesting because in my conversations with them, there was no doubt in my mind that they were all patriotic, loyal Russian citizens. But they just couldn't comprehend why that was incompatible with holidaying abroad, studying abroad, traveling abroad, living abroad, being able to straddle as many people in other countries do constantly, that span of I'm a loyal Russian, Russia is my homeland, my family is here, and yet I've got a job in London or I'm going to have my kids educated in Switzerland, something, of course, the Kremlin elite and the business elite have been constantly doing, even as the policies have been preaching otherwise. And this, to me, is a really interesting cohort. The challenges that have been put before them now are very real, and I think, you know, Dmitry Peskov has recently been quoted denying that there are any plans to close Russian borders. This is the same Peskov who denied that there were any plans to mobilize the population for the war in Ukraine. So I think support for Putin, long bow to come back to your question, support for Putin, there is a core, strong basis of populist support, particularly outside the urban areas. But it's interesting that in municipal elections in big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, the United Russia candidates, Yedinaya Rasiya, the party that, you know, with which Putin has long been associated, although not formally an office holder of now, have always fared badly compared with the alternatives. So, Len, there is a, there is a spread. But I think these actions have really eroded his authority and the popular support for Putin, not to the point that there is a risk of an uprising, but he has to work harder now to keep whacking the moles of criticism that pop up out of the ground. The 
picture you paint there, what strikes me is that it's only so long that the Kremlin can continue patching together a kind of a, a set of emotional stories that will, that will keep people focused on what they want them to be focused on before people start simply asking the question, well, actually, sorry, but you're making my life fundamentally unsatisfactory here and you are actually an obstacle to my, to my happiness and my well-being and that of my family. Whether that is the kind of logical consequence to that analytical process we might want to sort of reflect, there is no doubt that the material well-being of most people has significantly deteriorated over the last few years. And the, the naysayers and the well-wishers in the West, whatever the West is, who say sanctions have no effect. Well, I used to say when I wanted to provoke an argument in Russia to my friends, if sanctions are so ineffectual and irrelevant, why do you invest so much political capital in trying to have them lifted? And wasn't it a superlative achievement of the Kremlin's policies that under Donald Trump, you had sanctions that were imposed by executive order, which could have been removed by executive order, were then codified into law by an act of Congress. So that tells you, firstly, if sanctions are irrelevant, they're investing an awful lot to have them removed. Second, I was recently approached by a Russian friend um, whom I respect on behalf of someone who was on the Australian sanctions list. And this individual said, is there anything that can be done to get me off the list because it is interfering with my international activity? So there is proof that sanctions do have an effect. Whether they have the effect of getting Putin and the Kremlin to change course, that's not their intent. That's not their ultimate purpose, surely. This is simply illogical because China has been no more successful at getting the Australian government to change policies through the imposition of punitive economic measures, then sanctions will be in making Putin wake up one day and say, I've been a fool. What was I thinking? Let me reverse course. But a price has to be paid and action has to be taken. And I've been pleasantly surprised by the comprehensiveness of the response to the absolutely brutal invasion of Ukraine and everything that has been done by Russia there against the backdrop of this shape-shifting narrative. Then let us count the number of rationales for why the uh, war, and never let us call it a special military operation because Leo Tolstoy didn't write special military operation and peace, why the war in Ukraine was unleashed unilaterally by Putin in complete breach of solemn undertakings made by the government of Russia under Boris Yeltsin in the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, which pledged to respect the political independence, the sovereignty and the territorial integrity of Ukraine and to refrain from the use or the threat of the use of either force or economic coercion to impede any of those sovereign rights inherent with the sovereign national status of Ukraine. First, they went into denazify Ukraine, whatever that means. Then it was about alleged genocidal actions against Russian populations in the Donbass. Then it was about removing Zelensky. And between Lavrov and Putin, we've had so many narratives dealed out about why we went into Ukraine that there can be absolutely no veracity and no trust, uh, I think, in anything that the Kremlin says about its intent or its willingness to compromise. And there is not much talk of compromise. And I'm wary of talking about compromise anyway when one side is holding a loaded gun pointed at the other. I'm not sure that 
compromise at the moment does anything other than legitimize the use of force to alter sovereign boundaries in Europe in ways that have taken the words war in Europe out of a merely historical context and made them the lived reality of millions of people today. Given the situation that Putin finds himself in now, first of all, just give us a read on Putin insofar as you're able. How adept is he going to be at the art of brinkmanship? How predictable or how competent do you think he's going to be in making the right decisions from his point of view to outmatch his adversaries? It is a hard question to answer because elements in the answer include what information is he getting? How much trust does he invest in that information? One assumes that at the outset he was told this would be a cakewalk and I think the evidence of ill planning was manifest. We are now in the, what is it, seventh month of the three-day war in Ukraine. Second, what is his goal now? In Aleppo, he proved the reverse pottery barn rule. We broke it, you own it. And I think an outcome for him that allows him to continue to make rump Ukraine a mendicant burden upon the West is an entirely acceptable outcome if he can secure the territorial annexations that he illegally has carried out in eastern Ukraine, Crimea, and, and in southern southeastern Ukraine. Does he have an interest in a way out? I'm not sure where a way out leads for Putin. No Russian leader has ever handed back territory. And if you see now that increasingly this this fanatical ideological basis for the war in Ukraine. Look at the essay he wrote last year. Again, something that I think we paid too little attention to. The Munich Security Conference speech of 2007, subsequently the military invasions in Georgia, the first invasion of Ukraine when Crimea was occupied, and then, of course, the de facto occupation of the Donbass by mercenaries, by little green men, by whatever you want to call them. This is a pattern which does not suggest to me a desire to get to a point where you say enough. And I always challenge people who tell me, you know, if we'd be nicer to Mr. Putin, if we'd only had more understanding for Russia's legitimate grievances, we'd be in a better position. So tell me what would constitute enough from that point of argumentation. Sure, mistakes were made. I think there was naivety about what path Russia would embark upon post-1991. But the words NATO expansion should be banished from our vocabulary. That is a Kremlin line. I have never seen any evidence that NATO set about the eastwards expansion. Go back to what I said earlier. You give people sovereignty of choice. Peoples who lived under the Soviet yoke for generations, exercised choice. And that right to exercise choice was unambiguously recognised in the Budapest Memorandum signed by the presidents of Russia, of Ukraine, of uh, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom and the President of the United States. And that letter was transmitted, that text was transmitted by letter to the UN Security Council over the signatures of the permanent representatives of those four countries, amongst whom at the time was Sergei Viktorovich Lavrov, Foreign Minister of Russia. So for Putin, 
He is, in my view, a man who is increasingly driven by maximalist views. And I, uh, I don't see where the kernel of a compromise can exist at the moment because compromise could only be on terms utterly unacceptable to one side or the other. That doesn't mean we should close our minds to what a diplomatic process could help deliver, but a diplomatic process in lieu of supporting Ukraine to defend itself militarily against this naked aggression, the likes of which have not been seen since 1939. These are things that are really uncanny and deeply disquieting, as indeed is the way in which the Russian military is being unleashed and Russian mercenaries in the form of the Wagner private military group. It's remarkable that the language that was used to describe Ukraine seeking or allegedly being offered volunteers from other nations, they were decried as mercenaries unlike those who uh, who sought to help the Russian side. It's a very powerful and not at all uplifting assessment. Then if Putin intends to sort of go all the way, as it were, and negotiation is not really part of his consideration at the moment, where is he actually trying to take things? I mean, is he just trying to bog things down with facts on the ground that can't be reversed until that just becomes a state of perpetuity? Or are you talking about sort of continued pressing and expansion? I think there is a real risk that we will see Putin continuing to invest in something that has worked so well for him for so long, and that is you know, the attention deficit disorder plagued West. Whether or not this winter will prove as horrendous for Europe with energy supplies, as has been forecast, remains to be seen. I think one of the colossal own goals for Putin has been, by his actions, he not only has enlarged NATO and had countries like Finland and Sweden with a studied policy for generations of military neutrality seek to join NATO. He has also successfully helped Europe's gas addicts get off the Russian needle. So that strategic leverage is lost forever to Russia as a consequence of his invasion of Ukraine. Where do we go? I fear that we will see something akin to, as a Russian friend of mine put it in a conversation in, uh, in September, <clears throat> the Korean War. So an outcome that isn't an outcome, perhaps stabilisation, along some line of military control, although the success of Ukraine's counter-offensives, the abject failure of the Russian military to prosecute the war, and there's been some very good writing uh, uh, in part by Mick Ryan and others on this uh, in Australia. What we now see, I think, is a risk of horizontal escalation. And with the advent of the Iranian kamikaze drones, Putin now has an instrument, a relatively cheap instrument, available to him to continue to sow disunity, to inflict terror, to undermine resolve, and to wait out whatever is happening on the main battlefield, if that can be brought to some kind of stable outcome. There is talk of the risk of nuclear escalation. We cannot discount it. Certainly he's talked about it. But for too long, I think we have tended to react with horror at everything provocative the Kremlin has said. We shouldn't gainsay it, but I think what we see now is Putin recognising that in November there is a real prospect, according to the pundits, that the Republicans will regain control of the House and possibly both Houses, 
uh, the Senate and the House. There is the turmoil in Great Britain. The question is always how long can the stamina and the cohesion of the European Union last? There's been some incredibly impressive moves taken by nations, including Germany. But we see in Viktor Orban in Hungary, a man who is not exactly aligned entirely with the deal defeat to Russia and to Putin sort of school of thought. So he knows there are contradictions and he knows that the nature of the Western political system creates opportunities. And I think the long game is holding out for that, continuing to disrupt and to impose a financial burden upon the West, bleeding resources, bleeding military support into Ukraine, continue killing Ukrainian soldiers and and mercilessly terrorising and killing Ukrainian civilians with relative impunity. Uh, The Kremlin has shown an incredibly high tolerance for international opprobrium. It doesn't mind being unpopular. It resists and reacts viscerally when the status and the dignity of Russia is impugned. And I think we, we do struggle to find an optimistic scenario at the moment for an outcome in Ukraine. Notwithstanding those difficult moments ahead, whether it's around the, the midterms in the US and the, the possibility, not a huge one, but, a, but the possibility that Republican majorities with enough Trumpist representatives might actually start to erode bipartisanship and unity in the political unity in the US on continued Ukraine support. And as you say, the, the political chaos going on in the UK. How encouraged are you by the world's response to date uh, towards Russia and Ukraine. We talked about sanctions earlier, but really the the pathway that we're on internationally right now, it, is it actually a pretty encouraging one in terms of um, maintaining this time around a proper focus and a proper level of unity with response to Russia? I think this tragic situation in Ukraine has actually galvanised latent tendencies and trends that otherwise would have struggled to coalesce. For me, a seminal moment, and I hope it was not lost uh, in either Moscow or Beijing, came when major Western companies like Shell and BP wiped their hands of billions of dollars of investment in Russia and said, we are pulling out. We're not going to try to negotiate an outcome. We're not going to try to soften sanctions. The horrendous actions that Russia has undertaken, Putin's Kremlin has undertaken in Ukraine, have really crystallised, I think, an understanding of what we are dealing with when you seek accommodations with increasingly authoritarian systems. So at one level, I have been heartened by the, the breadth and the relative speed after a slightly stuttery start of the collective Western response. The question now will be, can we draw the right lessons from that? And I think we are seeing signs. There are discussions underway. Energy in Europe, of course, is the big one. But there are discussions underway, uh, including in Australia, about how do we make sure we are prepared? How do we make sure we can be more self-reliant, not autarkic, but more self-reliant? And I hope this will stimulate a, a long overdue national conversation about what does national resilience actually mean? 
in my view, globalization as we have seen it practiced and lived it and prospered from for the last four decades is over. I think the vulnerability of supply chains that was highlighted in the COVID pandemic and that is increasingly underscored by what we are seeing in the military aggression in Ukraine, transpose that to other potential scenarios. Uh, I think people around the globe are recognising that there is a need for more national self-reliance. Whether that conversation happens and leads to satisfactory outcomes will be the consequence of the untidiness that is democracy. But the great thing about democracy, and I always used to have this discussion with friends in Russia, is it's inefficient, it's cumbersome, you cannot, unlike the Kremlin, simply sign a decree and have it introduced and debated and passed on the third reading in the same day in that tame edifice called the Duma. We have an untidy, sometimes clunky system, but at the end it generates something which the Kremlin cannot ever claim to have, and that is legitimacy, because it is legitimacy that is derived from accountability. And that, as a concept, as we would understand it, is totally alien in the Russian system. Yeah, certainly. I mean, national resilience and what we have learnt about the need for it over um, over recent times is certainly something that we here at Aspie are, um, are very preoccupied with. I can't finish without just covering on the nuclear question. I'm not going to ask you for a, a percentage probability, of course, but but just give me your assessment of what's going on in, in Putin's mind and Kremlin policy planning right now. I mean, what would be the the utility for them of of deploying, say, a tactical nuclear weapon? And how are we doing, do you think, uh, internationally at this point um, in signalling to Putin that if he were to do that, there would be no return from it and it would be the end of him and a massive diminution of Russia's status for a generation? Again, I, I would be reluctant to try to project myself into Putin's mind. I am sure that he has contingency plans and I am sure that the Russian general staff has provided him with scenarios, options, and a scale of escalatory possibilities. To my lay thinking, deploying tactical nuclear weapons, really it's hard to see what military advantage that brings. Does it bring a political advantage? It brings massive political downsides, as you've alluded. I think there would be an escalation of reaction from around the world to the first use of even tactical nukes to affect a change in sovereignty, to affect an outcome in a geopolitical sense. I am hoping that the Russian military is saying there is no military utility in tactical nukes being deployed in Ukraine. They would have an enormous shock factor, of course, would it be enough to cow Ukraine? Would a tactical nuclear strike on a major population centre be enough to bring an end to Western support for Ukraine, to bring the abject surrender of the Ukrainian government? That's a matter for speculation. I do think that the rattling of that cage must generate serious anxiety on the part of all nations, including the other permanent members of the Security Council who share a table with Russia as to the risks to the non-proliferation regimen, the risks to the concord that has existed for generations from the Cold War up to this day about the risks and the, and the catastrophic 
self-destruction that would be inherent in even a tactical use of nuclear weapons. This, of course, is not the only military that possesses these weapons. And you know, we see other geographies where this is a factor in play, at least rhetorically and conceptually. But this is the first time we've seen you know, a leader of a nation that purports to be a great nation, a global player, worthy of sitting at the same table as the only nation for which Russia has ever seen a yardstick, namely the United States. This must be a seriously compromised sort of option from even Putin's point of view. But the problem we repeatedly make is projecting our rationale and our conceptual frame of reference on to Russia. People have said, oh, Putin's not rational. He's deeply rational, viewed from his vantage point, how he defines the national interests of Russia. And we collectively in the West are not as good as we should be at crossing to the other side of the table and comprehending why does it look like this to this individual, to this government, to this system. doesn't mean we acquiesce. But unless we comprehend why things look that way, we struggle with creating our own raft of policy options in response, and the messaging is terribly important. And I think the cohesion and the resolve that has been shown so far in response to the invasion of Ukraine, if that has reached Putin in an unfiltered form, must weigh in the calculus, because it has been a coherence and a discipline and an enduring resolve that I don't think we've seen for many, many decades. And anything less than that would amount to abject failure in relation to this brutal aggression against a sovereign state. Sure, sure. Last quick question. All periods obviously are interesting, but we're now in um, a gravely interesting period where we need great policy minds more than ever. Is there, is there a part of you personally that, that regrets no longer being around the table to help our way through these things? And I suppose what's left for the Peter Tesh story? It's interesting. It's been, at the time of this discussion, two months since I retired after 35 and a half years. I like waking up, reading that the world is going to hell and thinking somebody's going to have a busy day. But I also said I'm not going to retire from life. I'm not going to retire from international security and from foreign policy. So I will continue to enjoy the change of pace, even as I start to think a bit more about where and how can I continue to be active in an area to which I've given so much of my life, my professional life and my adult life, and where I think you can actually be a constructive player, even from without the bureaucracy, rather than being inside. So you know, I certainly would like to continue to be involved, recognising that currency of knowledge dates, but I think experience remains useful and valuable. And I certainly think that the work ASPE does, the work that the few entities like ASPE that we have in this country do is incredibly important to building an informed appreciation of the challenges. One thing that I have noted with great interest over the last few years is an awakening amongst the broader Australian community of what geostrategic means. Words like robust, resilient and strategic, we all use without ever really knowing what they mean. We think they grace the conversation. But Australia, I think, has come to really comprehend more than in the first half of my life what 
our region means, what is afoot in our region, what is afoot in the globe and why it matters to this remote island, which has incredible demonstrated and latent capacity and potential. And I do hope that Aspie will continue to inform that debate and discussion and help breed that inquisitiveness and in particular help build an understanding that is gradually returning, I think, that Europe matters to Australia, that Europe as a construct, as a concept, as a continent and a market of half a billion people, as a source of enormous capability and great appeal to many other countries in the world, has in the last five to eight years really come much more to grips with the importance to Europe of our Indo-Pacific region the significance of what we have experienced, what we bring to bear, and I do hope that we will continue to build out those relationships bilaterally with significant countries like Germany and France, uh, but also with Europe as a whole. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Th- thank you for your um, for your kind recognition of our contribution. We're, um, we're not short of things to do. And no. I suspect you won't be either. Peter, thanks very much for joining David, the podcast. pleasure to join you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Aspie podcast. We'll be back this Friday with our normal episode of Policy, Guns and Money.